Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, really it's good. going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set here. Welcome to the March edition of Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We'll be chatting about future missions to the moon, the challenge of sleeping in space and Richard reports from inside a lab where scientists are growing tomatoes in urine. I'm so glad this is not a 4D podcast and it's all in the interests of space exploration. Our guests are Helen Fraser, a senior lecturer in astronomy at the Open University, whose research, according to her biography, covers all things ice and space, which means... Well, I like to understand where ice is in space. Um, and actually, ice is the, the second... Water ice is the second most common molecule we find in any of space. So it's pretty important for origins of life, origins of planets, even origins of stars. Well, we're also joined by David Wade, rocket engineer and underwriter for the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. Um, an expert on rocket launchers and you insure satellites... David, every time there's a launch that you ensure, I mean, you're sitting there sort of biting your fingers thinking, oh, no. Oh, yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Some some launch vehicles more so than others. Uh, Some launch vehicles I'm very worried. Some I can't get to sleep. Some I go to bed quite happy and wake up the following morning to find out my fate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, since our last podcast, SpaceX have once again made history. Three, two, one. Ignition and liftoff of the Falcon 9 to the space station on the first commercial launch from Kennedy Space Center's historic Pad 39A. Pad operations on Pad 9A. Copy, Wilco. The launch of a Dragon spacecraft to the space station on 19th of February from Pad 39A. Significant because that's the same launch site that Apollo 11 lifted off to the moon in 1969. And that's where SpaceX have said they want to go. Within two years, flying two extremely wealthy space tourists in a Dragon capsule around the moon, not to it or on it, but around the moon, and with any luck, fingers crossed, back to Earth again. We should make clear it's not us. No, <laughs> that's true. I'd like it to be, to be honest. Well, I'd just like to be immensely wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. David, how realistic do you think the plan is? I think it's realistic, but I, I'm 
questioning the timescale. Um, a know, lot we, of people are. Yeah, we, we see a lot of space projects being delayed. Um, the Falcon Heavy has been delayed. This, uh, this launch will take place on a Falcon Heavy rather than the Falcon 9. The Falcon Heavy is already being delayed a number of years. It's now due to fly in the middle of this year for the first time. And we'll get a few flights in before this proposed crewed mission to the moon. To the moon. And the uh, the crew capsule as well, the Dragon crew capsule is also has been delayed. Um, is due to go up to the space station later this year, possibly early early next year. So it will get two or three flights in before this date. But yeah, there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> it, it took a lot of people by surprise, which made some people question: Was there a plan, or did this just come out of opportunism? If two people said, "Hey, we've got money, would you take us?" I, I don't know, to tell you the truth. Um, I mean, it took me by surprise as well. We all knew that Elon Musk was going to be giving a press conference uh, 24 hours in advance. And we were expecting that it might be something like his new spacesuit design or you know, some element to do with the space station missions. Um, that was certainly what was upmost on the um, on the company's manifest at the time. Um, so, yeah, this has taken the whole industry by surprise. And it's a big step because you haven't even had people on the um, in, in the Dragon yet, let alone no, absolutely, going to the moon absolutely. I mean, the Dragon has proven itself as an uncrewed capsule and the crewed version of the capsule will still be an automatic it will still fly really on autopilot. Um, so life support systems added and that type of thing will make it, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big step. Um, but it's not as big a step as, say, some of the earlier capsules where you're really having to prove docking, rendezvous, all of those kinds of things as well. Some of that technology has already been proven. Do you think NASA's had its nose put out of joint? <laughs> as has been suggested from several media aspects. And let's face it, it, it must, must have been because this is, you know, they're in the process of getting their Orion caps they're going to the moon as a stepping stage towards their eventual destination, oh. Mars. And here they are sort of, you know, Absolutely. sorry, you're, you're, you're second here. Yes, and uh, Elon Musk was very keen to say that NASA would take priority if they chose to do so. Um, and the Orion capsule, they're now looking at putting a crew on that first capsule, which was not the, not the plan, you know, certainly six months ago. The last few months they've been talking about that. And now there's some belief that maybe this was early discussions with SpaceX that made them think that they need to do more. Because there is NASA money into SpaceX as well. Oh, absolutely. the whole thing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, all of the, uh, the, the crude, well, the, the capsules going up to the space station now were under what was called the Commercial Resupply Service. Uh, the crude uh, version will be under another NASA contract. But yeah, absolutely. And, and Elon Musk has always praised NASA for the amount of uh, business that they've brought to him and allowed him to uh, complete these missions. You mentioned putting a crew on the first Orion capsule on the, on the space launch system. That seems an extraordinarily risky things to do. I know they did it with the space shuttle, but the space shuttle had been tested in the atmosphere many times before that. Uh, the orbiter had been tested in the in the atmosphere. I mean, the launch system had not been tested in the atmosphere, of course. And this is an extension of the space shuttle. Yeah, it uses pretty much the same technology for the external tank, a stretch solid rocket booster from the space shuttle program, the same rocket engines from the space shuttle program. I think it is a big step. I mean, it's certainly not something to be done lightly these days. Um, you know, there's much more... Um, uh, there's much more cautiousness when it comes to putting a crew on board now. But I think they are being pushed. I mean, you know, Elon Musk, SpaceX and some of the Space 2.0 companies are really showing what is capable with the right amount of money being thrown at these projects. Helen, how do you feel about this sort of new, ambitious space exploration idea? Well, you know, 
obviously I think it's it's great that we have different forces driving us forwards. I mean, we're talking here about SpaceX and NASA, but we shouldn't forget that, that there are other players in the market like the Chinese, the Indians. There's quite a lot of pressure coming from different places. I don't know, as a scientist, I always like to th- see things working collaboratively and we're trying to work always across borders. And in a way, you don't really mind who gets you there as long as they get you there to do your science. We're a bit promiscuous like scientists like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you heard I, it here first. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I have to say, it, it's kind of interesting because even through the Apollo era, um, even through the space shuttle era, if we think about some of the decisions that have been made about space shuttle and everything else, always, you know, sort of not losing astronauts has been the key point. And starting to make decisions where where you're going manned early, starting to make decisions where commercially people are saying, okay, we'll take a risk, you know. Perhaps there's a difference. If Perhaps if you're paying for your place and you're, you're willing to take the risk and you're willing to give it a go, I'm certain if we asked out there who would go to Mars tomorrow, there would be plenty of people who would say yes. Um, wouldn't really think about it and, and would take the risk. They, they would be adventurers. I think for the, for the astronauts, there's a slightly different thing because they're not just going to go around the moon or, or do something. There's normally a scientific or a technical reason or getting to the ISS to, to, do, to do work. Um, and if you lose your crew, you, you don't just lose the crew at the time and the astronauts. And I'm talking very flippantly here about losing people, but I don't mean it flippantly. But you're also losing, say, six months of work or three months of work and a way to get back down again and all these other things. And... I think one of my biggest sort of red flags with this this idea that SpaceX have of sending two people sort of around the moon is it, it's very well to talk about it all being automated and the docking is automated and everything else. But we know in the Soyuz, the docking is automated. How many times in the last few launches to the space station has the docking not been done on an automated uh, fashion? Now, we know the Russians get paid by performance, so they quite often like to dock, not, not automated. But, um, um, well, it's picking up on that with <laughs> Tim Peake's. Um, yes. docking to the to the space station that had to be done manually absolutely uh, in the end a couple of the, times the, yeah, yeah because the automatic system system failed so i mean david on that is is that safe to put people in an automated capsule on a mission around the moon well this will be on a free return so basically when you've headed off towards the moon once that rocket burns out yeah, you, so they'll come you're back along one, for the ride. They'll come back one way or the other. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you're along for the ride at that stage. Uh, yeah, the technology has developed a long way. Um, yeah, I take your point about the uh, the docking. Yeah, the uh, the technology has developed a long way, and it, it's yeah, it's it's showing where the technology can take us. I mean, I think it's exciting from that point of view. Um, I agree entirely with what you're saying about the science missions, but it's it's certainly driving the industry forward. I think that's what's quite exciting, and, and not just because at the moment I'm making a a documentary, a BBC World Service radio documentary about going back to the moon and we'll be visiting Moon Express, one of the commercial companies who are involved. And and as you said, Helen, there's Team Indus who are finalists in the Google X Prize, the Google Lunar X Prize, who are from India, there's Space IL from Israel. This is a a global, all, all of China's ambitions. This is very interesting because it's not just the big space agencies it's lots of independent 
companies and Europe have, uh, as I mean, we'll hear s- some of the stuff from Richard later. It, it's incredible, I think, the amount. Well, you've got Jan Werner, the Director General of, of, of ESA, his ambitions. You've got what's working towards it on the ground as well in terms of habitation, how not just how you get there, but what you do when you get mm. there. Like you say, the science has got to be done. And also people have got to be be safe. So it's it's um, in a way it feels like we're doing what probably should have been done in the 70s as a continuation from the Apollo missions, it's just like uh, there's been a rather long gap, a uh, waiting period to get to this excitement again. I think so. And I think we have to think about why the moon has suddenly come quite back into fashion. I mean, I think even 12 months ago... Because it's cheaper than Mars, I think. Well, (laughs) I think it's not just that. I think it's also, it is a kind of stopping off point. I mean, sample return is becoming a really big thing that's driving the science forward. And this may be from Mars, it may be from an asteroid, it may even be from other parts of the moon, the dark side of the moon, the places where we didn't go and get samples on Apollo. I mean, if you pick up a a few samples from Earth on six missions that happen to land on Earth's surface, you don't sample all of the the rock and the soil and everything on Earth. It is quite exciting and it is quite interesting and it is driving things forward. And I think moving beyond low Earth orbit is a really exciting thing. I think, you know, if it was my experiment that was going on a a mission around the back of the moon for some reason, I don't necessarily, necessarily think my experiment needs to do that. But if it was... I would have quite a lot of redundancy. So I guess if I was the human being sitting in that capsule and I wasn't a trained astronaut that had 101 ways to think about getting out of whatever could go wrong, which is really what our astronauts are trained for, which makes putting them on an Orion capsule a bit different, I would just be a bit cautious. But these guys have paid a lot of money and obviously want to go and obviously feel confident. And maybe they are two ex-astronauts. Who knows? We don't know who they are. I sort of admire, though, that whoever the two are that have have gone up, and I'm assuming that they are Silicon Valley techie-type people, because what they've done is they've driven that momentum forwards. They have caused a, a, a shift, a change. They've caught people off guard. They've made big people like NASA go, oh, hold on. And if they're they're successful, that will be brilliant. Yeah. Let's be honest, you know, and and when Christopher Columbus, we can think about all the things, but when Christopher Columbus decided to sail or anything else, you you sometimes have to take these step changes. You have to be disruptive. You have to have a go. And it's more likely to come from a commercial company because the bigger any space agency, the bigger they are, then the more sort of bureaucracy and paper and box ticking that had and it's for safety obviously but mm-hmm. then the, the slower the process becomes absolutely we've seen that with orion and the space launch system i mean already yeah. 10 years in or so you know a 10 billion dollar project you know and uh, private companies doing this you know significantly less price um you know, coming back on the training point of course uh, if you if these people are not astronauts that's exactly the time that you do want to to be automated you know you don't want them <laughs> pressing any buttons or doing anything that they're not supposed to be doing yeah you know, they you want them to be along for the ride just seen see with sue with the coffee machine earlier <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah. terrifying yeah, you imagine a door the emergency door coming off mid-flight <laughs> for me it's always the photocopier i get to the photocopier it breaks that happens every time yeah. which is the reason none of us around this table are going to be on that flight <laughs> Which is a shame. I must. I, we've got to say that on our um, on the Space Boffins Facebook page, one of our um, American uh, uh, listeners did suggest that one of those two people might be his president, but uh, we we can't confirm or deny that fact. <laughs> right, we're going to head to the uh, German space agency DLR, a lab in Cologne now, which is a lab full of pipes and tanks of bubbling urine. 
Our guide is biologist Jens Hauschlage, who's working on a mission, launching later this year, to grow tomatoes in space using urine. The idea is that maybe human waste could be used to grow food in future space stations or colonies on the Moon or Mars. When you, when you look at the Earth, at closed systems, on one hand you have plants producing oxygen, producing food, on the other hand you have the animals, and you need both of them. You need animals and plants and also microbacteria to perform all these degradation processes like in the soil here on Earth. Tell me what this room is all about. It's an awful <laughs> lot of, uh, of, of drain pipes and barrels. Yeah, sure. So uh, our idea is when you produce water, food, oxygen in a closed life support system, you have to um, recycle it again, like in the soil on Earth. And our idea was to put the functionality of the soil inside of these trickle filters. Inside of the barrel, there's a pump who is pumping the artificial urine through these trickle filter, through these column, and uh, small bacteria so live inside or on top of the lava rocks inside of the trickle filter, converting from urine into a fertilizer solution for plants. Now, your plan is, this year, to apply this actually in space. And in your office, you've got some of the tomatoes you'll be growing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So we are planning this Eucropis mission. So in this mission, we want to test combined biological life support system under lunar and Martian gravity for each six months. Okay, so let's head up into your office to have a look. Yeah, sure. Come with me. So we've come into your office and... Um, it's a normal size <laughs> science of office with a whiteboard on the wall, lots of books. But you've got tanks growing tomatoes. And you've got a, a light over the, over the top to give them some sunlight. And this is Germany in winter, so there's not a, good, not a great deal. And that's a closed system. Obviously, it's exposed to the air, but yeah. you've got a, a closed system there. The, the nutrition are, are closed, yeah. So uh, you have to feed it once a year a bit to tune the solution a bit but all the old leaves you see from the upper tomatoes they're falling down into the aquaria and will be decomposed again by um, microorganisms and will feed up the tomatoes again so and if we get a bit closer they they are healthy tomatoes you've got flowers on some of these uh, plants at the, at the top you've got just green tomatoes and some beautiful perfectly red very small tomatoes i guess a size of a a one euro coin, something, something yeah, like that. Around, yeah. So this is a draft tomato with one 1.5 centimeters. And also, uh, one important thing, they're really fast. After 60 days from seed to the first tomatoes. Now you just pick one. Are they edible? Yeah, sure. I'll try it. Okay. Hmm. I mean, they're not the nicest tomatoes. But they're like, mm, not bad. I mean, they taste of tomato. They are a tomato. Um, so this could work. This could work in space. That's the whole point. It's a closed system. Yeah. You obviously wouldn't want an open tank. Yeah. But the, the theory is that this will just carry on, the tomatoes will carry on growing. Yeah, sure. So um, it's opened, okay, So, but the plants in this state produce more oxygen than uh, produce CO2. So we get a positive oxygen balance at the moment. And we want to try it under lunar Martian gravity. That's the reason why we launched Eucropus this year. Okay, so tell me about this, this mission. You're actually going to fly something very much like this with real tomatoes. Yeah. 
and they would start as tomato seeds in a satellite. Yeah. So in this satellite, you have to imagine there are greenhouse with some tomato seeds. And after launch of the satellite in space, we spin up the satellite producing moon gravity, 0.16 g. And, and it's packed with cameras. That's the idea. So you'll be able to see these, these tomatoes in space. <laughs> yeah. this, this was also the reason why we choose these dwarf tomatoes. So you, you can see the, the fruits really clearly in the, in the picture of the cameras. Now, assuming this works and you get tomatoes, this opens up a whole new area of actually growing things using urine and using biological waste in space. Uh, yeah, but it's closing cycles will enable the exploration of the humans to Mars and Moon and um, not to, to see the Martian take up some protein bars or some, <laughs> some power bars with him to extend the time over 70, 90 days yeah, to live for a long time. You must be really looking forward to the launch. It's been yeah. seven years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. So I will be really, really happy when I see it's launched. Jens Hauslars and his tomatoes grown in urine. Uh, the Eucropis mission is due for launch later this year and actually on a Falcon rocket as it happens. Uh, we'll put some pictures of the tomatoes on our Facebook page and uh, you can read a feature on the mission on the BBC Future website but of course you won't get to hear me eat one of those tomatoes. <laughs> what was the smell like? Well, no, well, the tomatoes or the urine. <laughs> Both. Both. Yeah, well, that was a weird thing, actually. Um, the lab didn't smell at all. Oh. There was no smell because the, the bacteria are so efficient that they can just process the ammonia produced by the urine really quickly and turn that into nutrients for the uh, tomatoes. So that smells better than a bus station yeah. toilet. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it didn't smell. It didn't smell at all. I mean, it's this whole amazing. laboratory around the size of this room, reasonable size, we're in a reasonable size uh, studio here with these tanks and buckets all bubbling with urine and didn't smell of urine at all. Wow. Yeah. All, all in liquid in the bottom of the... Yeah, these oh, big, a big vat. Imagine a barrel, yeah. like a beer barrel, but full of urine and then a, a drain a pipe, pipe please. <laughs> and a drain pipe coming up from that and within that are the bacteria turning it, yeah. turning the ammonia from the urine into uh, nitrates that the uh, the tomatoes can use. That's brilliant. The yeah. marsh, the Martian, come to life. Exactly. Yeah, Very much I'll, so. I think I'll wait until they get the pizza of an old space station. <laughs> before I go. This is the Space Boffins podcast, and we're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Do tell us what you think. Send us any ideas as well for stories you think we should cover or, or guests you think we should feature. Speaking of guests, Helen Fraser, uh, you mentioned at the top ice. And space. So do you have a particular part of the solar system that you are most interested in? Oh, well, you know, I'm interested in solar systems. I I like to know how they come into being, really. So um, my key area of research is actually sort of looking at where the, the regions of space where stars and planets are forming. So these are things like molecular clouds, um, protoplanetary disks, lots of complicated words. Stellar nurseries. Stellar nurseries. They're the the molecular cauldrons, I like to call them, of of space. Because basically wherever we see chemistry happening in space, interesting chemistry is exactly where stars and planets are forming. So uh, because ice forms in these regions, they're cold and, and it's predominantly water Understanding water ice is a really interesting thing to do to understand what's happening in the chemistry of star formation, the physics of star formation. Ice is probably even the glue that sticks planets together. So uh, we end up in our own solar system with icy moons, uh, maybe just 
today or yesterday, I saw these wonderful pictures that Cassini had taken of this this really strange moon around Saturn, which had this little ring of particles around it. Oh, yes, it. I saw that. Yes, Pan. And pan. Yes. Understanding how these things form, really fascinating. Every time we see pictures, we just see more interesting things. Is, is astrochemistry, which is what you're, you're an astrochemist, is this a little That's bit like... Cool, sorry, that, sorry, that is the coolest <laughs> job title. Well, I mean, it's like who, who else in the room is an astrochemist? Yeah. 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 No well, one. this is it. Astro- I know quite a few astrochemists, actually. Because <laughs> ah, astrobiology is a relatively new field, but I've yeah. not heard of an astrochemistry, well, uh, astrochemist before. I think we've had astrochemists before we an astrobiologist and I would, I would is say it just this a new just, name it just, no I'm just going to make an argument for a minute you see astrophysicists they use physics to understand astronomy and astrobiologists imagine there could be some biology in astronomy but we can't prove it yet but astrochemists at least can study molecules in astronomy because the first molecules in astronomy were found you know two centuries ago, late 1800s, early 1900s. So there have been astrochemists around, actually, for, for over 100 years. And so it looks like the key to all this is ice, as you say, and particularly with the recent Rosetta mission to uh, Comet 67P, with the, ice is, does seem to be found everywhere, and, it, and it's key to life as well. Absolutely, and the strange thing about um, ice in space, so probably everyone's thinking, oh, ice, and you can go in your fridge and get out a, an ice cube. That kind of ice is called hexagonal ice, the kind of ice we see every day on Earth. That's Why? That's because it's, um, uh, it's, it's a bit of physics, but it's thermodynamically stable. At the pressure temperature conditions ice forms in uh, on the Earth, we form this hexagonal ice. It's, what, it's, but, but why hexagonal? Is that to do with the shape? It's to do with um, how the, the atoms and the molecules arrange. So it forms in hexagons. Actually, you, you kind of know this without realising, because probably since you were very little, you knew that a, a snowflake had um, six sort of points to a star and each one it's a fractal material but each star has then six points and six points again and that is completely governed by how these hexagons all fit together that's it's really amazing isn't it we go all the way from space to 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 a snowflake but actually in space uh, the ice is mostly amorphous and it's very porous and amorphous and the best thing i can describe it as looking like is a bath sponge Imagine a bath sponge, you know, lots of empty space in it. So what happens is it can trap gas in it. It can, it's got a huge surface area, so it can do loads of chemical reactions. And these things are nano-sized. And in our current world, nanotechnology is really exciting because these small surface areas and all the unusual properties of nanomaterials are really interesting. And ice in space is a nanomaterial. So we get, you know, nanochemistry occurring in a porous material, which is really exciting, that we don't really understand a lot about. Um, And actually, this thing acts as a glue. It helps us stick particles together when we're forming planets and comets. And it also is sort of the chemical factory that's driving all the chemistry to all the complex chemistry that gives us the ingredients for the origins of life when we have a planet. Brilliant, brilliant. So So stick between the two. So you would actually, for you, going back to the moon would be great for your research as well, Well, would it? Or or is the ice on the moon not as interesting as the ice that helps form solar systems? The ice on the moon is probably deep in the craters and it's probably going to tell us something about the ice on the surfaces of asteroids, moons. It's... In, you, um, I can tell from your face it's like, yeah, it's not as exciting no, well, as the, uh, the challenge so for me is actually part of my research. I like to go into microgravity environments. I'm always talking about that. That means low Earth orbit when we're in, in free fall, when we're, we look like we've switched gravity off. We haven't switched gravity off. So you can imagine being in orbit around the moon, you're still in, so in, in, in sort of low moon orbit, if you want to call it that. You're still going to have a microgravity environment. That's great. 
Actually, there's this huge push by ESA to have a moon base. And, and that will be really exciting for doing life sciences and understanding how humans can survive. But if you're a physical scientist like me, you're like, I don't want to be on the moon. There's a large gravitational field. There's a large gravitational force. Where do you want force. to be? Your robot? I want to be. No, I actually, well, if I'm looking for life, yes. But actually, if I want a microgravity environment, low Earth orbit is actually great. I just need to be free floating in a really good microgravity environment for a long period of time, preferably with no astronauts around at all. We'll see what we can do. Yes. When they flush the toilet, it ruins the experiment. <laughs> well, but you can grow tomatoes. So, <laughs> so if, you, if you are in your microgravity environment, what would it be like to sleep in space? Oh, well, that's kind of fun, right? Imagine if you have no up or down. So I've been on parabolic flights and there, you know, your, your body, it's like you're free floating. I don't know if any of, our, of the listeners have, have, have scuba dived, but when you're scuba diving, um, actually, if you're in a very, very blue, deep blue sea, one thing is you get very disorientated very quickly. You can't, if you're really diving well, you can't tell which way is up or down. You're neutrally buoyant. You're not going in any one direction. That's exactly what it feels like when you're in weightlessness. And so when the astronauts are trying to go to sleep, you know, they don't have an up or down. So they could sleep, you know, effectively with their head upside down or sideways. So they, they sleep in a sort of strapped in sleeping bag to give them some sense of, of, of sleeping, you know, not sleeping with a head in the middle of the air because we all like to sleep by feeling our head against something. Well, as it happens, we've got an astronaut who can tell us exactly how, how it feels yeah. to dawn every 90 minutes and just floating around at night. And it's uh, European Space Agency astronaut Luca Palmitano. My experience in general is that when you're put in a completely alien environment, it takes about three days to really sleep. The first night of sleep, you're sleeping because you're exhausted, but you wake up and, and then you go back to sleep and you're too hot and you're too cold and you don't know what's happening and what are these hands floating in front of my face or they're my own hands and it's just bizarre. <laughs> it's very difficult to imagine this idea of being in a sleeping bag but a sleeping bag that can float around. Do you strap yourself in so you're not hitting yourself in the night? or do, is, is there a, a weird sensation? The sleeping bag is just about the same size as I am. So I wasn't floating too much inside the sleeping bag. But I'll tell you what, the brain is an amazing, amazing machine. When it's time to go to bed, there are a lot of things that tell your brain, hey, it's time to quiet down and go to sleep. For example, routine. You have dinner, then you relax and you brush your teeth, and then you lay down. That pressure on your body tells your brain, hey, you're laying down and it's time to go to sleep. And all these things combined tell your body, time for bed. Now in orbit, apart from the routine, you're taking everything else away. You're not laying down because you're not vertical, you're not horizontal, you're just floating. You don't have any pressure on your back because you're not touching physically the mattress. You don't even have a pillow. Your brain has to come up with a way to adjust to that. And say, okay, you're laying down, you are on a mattress, and it's time to go to bed. So it's just amazing. Well, Lucas' brain may have adapted to sleeping on the International Space Station, but for many astronauts, it's a real struggle, which has implications for health and safety of the crew. I mean, in principle, they could get enough sleep, 8.5 hours, but they are not able to sleep during the night. Most of them, they only sleep five or six hours, and that is not enough. 
Eva Maria Aylmanhurst has been studying the impact of a bad night's sleep in the hope of helping future astronauts as well as shift workers on Earth. And she gave me a tour of her lab in the futuristic Envyhab building in Cologne. It's all white corridors and no windows. And this is where her experimental volunteers are deprived of sleep for days on end. What we want to show here, how this sleep loss affects their cognitive functioning. So we have a couple of tests here that are, most of them are quite boring. Like operators have, during their normal work days, they are monitoring things. This is when we see that they are um, having deficits in their cognitive functions. I can't help noticing in this room, which again is, is featureless, there are two cameras. There's a camera here by the bed, like closed circuit TV camera. And then just overhead, there's another camera pointing at, at the screen and them. I mean, it's quite a, it's a big brother scenario. <laughs> yes, the participants know that we monitor them during their test sessions. Okay, so let's go through to the next room. And in here, uh, these, these are extraordinary, these, these hairnets almost, with multiple sensors that fit over their heads like a swimming cap. Yes, 256 electrodes are attached to that cap and this is for monitoring their objective sleepiness. Okay, so the final room down the, uh, the white corridor is a room full of the monitors, and these are the computer monitors you're using to the closed circuit monitors. You've got a screen here with all these different displays. It, it really is a spy operation you've got here, isn't it? <laughs> yes, but we cannot see the bed. We can only see the monitors for the cognitive testing so that we see what they see on the screen, and we can monitor their eyes. So if they close their eyes too long or if we see that they doze off, we can uh, wake them up again. And as you can imagine, they dozed off quite a lot. Uh, Here's one of the participants, Magdalena. It was very difficult, especially after the sleep loss. What did they do if you looked like you were were falling asleep? There was always a Magdalena, don't sleep, Magdalena, are your eyes open? And we, yes, yes, let me go. (laughs) Yeah. But it wasn't just their cognitive function that the scientists were interested in. Yes, we are uh, interested in their metabolism because it is known that shift workers often suffer from diabetes or hypertension. We indeed could show here that these five days with five hours of sleep slows the um, glucose metabolism down so that the glucose levels in the blood stay higher than under normal conditions. So you're talking there about shift workers, but if, as we know, astronauts are not getting enough sleep, this is yet another reason why astronaut health suffers when they're they're in space. They're actually susceptible to high blood pressure and diabetes. Yes, astronauts, they are very healthy. I mean, they are specially selected to be very healthy people, but it could be that they, in the long run, due to the sleep loss, that they develop metabolic problems when they get older. And in terms of the results of this, how can this be applied? Because, I mean, obviously you want to try and reduce the effects of of sleeplessness or, I don't know, encourage people to have a a decent night's sleep. 
Yes, of course, we are interested always in applying it. So we um, want to develop recommendations for better shift schedules. Not everyone reacts in the same way. And if we know if someone is especially vulnerable, we could also protect them from adverse effects. Well, those some astronauts like uh, Luca Palmatano are pretty well adapted to life in space. It hasn't stopped him dreaming of how we could evolve to become a better adapted spacefaring species. I would like to see more evolution in the next couple of centuries. I'd like to have opposable toes. I'd like to have a tail, a prehensile tail. Things that we don't think about that would be very useful in space. And uh, maybe, you know, a thousand years from now, or more or less, depending on whether we, we try to modify our bodies in the future with genetic intervention, uh, maybe there will be a, a new species of uh, Homo sapiens evolution. It's going to be the Homo sapiens version 2.0, and it's going to be the spacefaring Homo sapiens. Fantastic. I love Luca Palmatana. He's great, isn't he? he? Is Do you think we will, Helen, adapt to more of the space environment as, as we live in it? Well, I think it's really interesting. So I can only speak from my own experience. So I've been on parabolic flights, for example. I only get 22 seconds of microgravity. So this is in one of these aircraft that sort of bobs up and down. Yeah, bobs up and down. They call them vomit comets, right? So, And and you repeat this about 30 times and you fly three or four days in a row. And the very first time you fly, if you're pretty sick, they give you drugs to help with that. Um, They feel like gin and tonic, which is really great. Um, (laughs) Why don't they just give you gin and tonic? (laughs) Well, I I wonder, actually, because these drugs actually say don't operate machinery, don't do anything untoward. And as the plane is taking off, everyone's half asleep because the drug has had that kind of effect. But anyway, the, the good news is... You get these drugs and the first few parabolas, you you don't feel so great. And then actually you start to adapt, you start to anticipate, your body does start to to evolve. And I think it's kind of funny that Lucas says he wants a tail or something because he's been up there for six months. And you see actually, we we could see with Tim Peake especially, you see that the first few days they get quite a lot of motion sickness, they're not well. But, But by six months in, they're absolutely fine. And then they get quite sick coming back down to earth again. We don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, they actually didn't let me when I was eight and a half months pregnant go on a parabolic flight. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> but we don't really know what's going to happen if, if we start, you know, um, reproducing in, in different microgravity environments. What if, what if babies are born on... Might make the birth a hell of a lot easier. It, it might not, though. We use gravity, right? I mean, <laughs> let's not go there. Yeah. But, um, but if a baby is born on, on, the, on the moon or on Mars and has never been on Earth, will they be able to return to Earth? You know, th- these are really interesting questions. We, we don't really know what will happen. And so many animals adapt. I was once on a parabolic flight. I don't quite know why they were doing the experiment. But they had grasshoppers in a box. And uh, for the first few parameters... Well, that's really cool, isn't it? I mean, it's you know, cool, but I, I mean... don't really know what the science purpose was. But I have to say, it was kind of cool. Because these grasshoppers in a box, the first few flights, they were showing these little videos. And these grasshoppers were just wobbling their arms and legs everywhere and just completely incoherent. And... And after about five or six parabolas, you know, the grasshoppers were hanging on and hanging upside down and completely, you know, jumping. If you looked at the video of them in, in, the, in the zero G part of the of the flight and the, even there's a two G part of the flight and the one G, they just completely adapted how they worked to, to this environment. Oh, that is interesting. David, do you see a time when we become a, a, a spacefaring species, if you like, rather than just keep 
throwing rockets off the earth? Hopefully not for a long time. Um, I think we, as as Helen says, we we need to understand what's happening up there first. I mean, we're already starting to see some of the long-term effects. Recently it's come out about uh, long-term eye eye, eye effects or effects on the eye because of long-term exposure to space. (laughs) Yeah, we know that bones (laughs) get brittle and that's not a short-term effect either. When people have returned to Earth, the bones remain brittle. So, yeah, there's a lot of effects that we don't fully understand yet. So I hope, for one, it's a long time before we... And, yeah. and with those bones, actually, what's amazing, all of the research up to very recently focused on, on the load-bearing bones. So you think legs and hips and, and things. And now they've started to look at arms and, and skull and spine, you know, the, the kind of bones you might not go to straight away. And actually, different bones in your body don't respond the same way. So some of the bones almost immediately lose bone density and sometimes never regain it. I think it's the, the forearm and the skull, the first tests on that, show that it, it doesn't really change that much through flight, but it actually gets worse when the astronauts get back to Earth and, and then gets better. And nobody understands that. So that's also really fascinating, isn't it? So we clearly need tails. Uh, or or, uh, like maybe little greys great big skulls and long arms who knows (laughs) anyway um, thank you very much both of you and uh, this week because we had uh, International Women's Day uh, also appropriately enough the uh, 6th of March was the 80th birthday of the first woman in space and my birthday too you share our birthdays congratulations (laughs) and uh, that was cosmonaut I'm sure all our uh, listeners know this Valentina Tereshkova well this gives us an excuse actually to play a a little bit of Valentina when um, I spoke to her back in uh, September 2015. She was at the London Science Museum to open the Cosmonauts exhibition, which was absolutely magnificent. And uh, I think this shows what a feisty woman she was. She surprised everyone. She was funny. She was witty. And this is her replying to my question. Incidentally, she was sitting in front of a group of very important Russian dignitaries and addressed her last point to them. We do have a brief spell for questions. We'll start with this lady here, yes. Hi, Sue Nelson from Space Boffins. Delighted to see you both here. I would like to ask Valentina, considering that the recent intake of NASA astronauts was 50% men, 50% women, are you disappointed that the Russian Space Agency recently has had so few women cosmonauts considering your achievement, including one spell of 20 years without any women? Of course I was disappointed, we were all disappointed, but of course now we have the space corporation set up in Russia and there are new talented, beautiful people who have come to work there. And I think the attitude to women will change. Do you hear me? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Go for it, Valentina. And on that bombshell, well, sort of 2015 bombshell, thanks to our guests, Helen Fraser from the Open University and David Wade from the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium, who support our podcast. Space Boffins is an editorially independent boffin media production, guaranteed free of fake news. We're back in a month. Thanks for listening.